0: You're listening to
1: Our Tunes. Music appreciation and digital media discourse.
0: Welcome to Our Tunes. I'm Lewis. Hey, Lewis. Sorry. (laughs)
1: What's up, Brad? Here we are in... Uh, Edenton, North Carolina. I don't know if we're in the corporate limits, but I do know for sure we're in Chowan County.
0: That's correct. Is that
1: correct pronunciation? Yeah, I think so. All right. First trip to North Carolina. And it's
0: been a while, and you've been even further afield. it's true. We've been kind of all over the place. Episode 7, just like episode 6, recorded outside of the confines of our homes in Philadelphia. Well, and you're skipping over a very
1: long journey since our trip from Providence.
0: That's true. <laughs> um, I traveled internationally to Italy, which was totally awesome. I had a lot of time on that trip to listen to and digest uh, the homework that was proposed by our previous pod guest, Ben Curry, Ariel by Kate Bush, which we will get to later on in the pod. Um, but yeah, it's just a really great way to recharge expose myself to lots of amazing food, wine, history. Incredible. Really great trip. I'm happy to be back because, you know, I miss home, miss being around my friends, but it's also a really special thing to get to do that, so I feel very lucky. Did you have any uh, particularly um, Italian
1: musical experiences while you were there?
0: I did actually see a guy who was walking around with like a one-man band contraption on him. His foot worked the bass drum pedal for a little bass drum strapped to his (laughs) back and he had a little hi-hat and uh, I think he had an accordion on the front. It was a little on the nose, but he was doing it. He was out there doing it in the streets. I gave him a couple euros and uh, he really brought it. We also did take in a really beautiful cultural uh, musical event, which was uh, Verdi's opera La Traviata.
2: In cotal guisa ucciderete, a ver reveruo pura dell'esser vostro. E lo potrei, o se mi a foste i de vostri santi. E dite, a forza alcuna
0: Becky, my uh, wife, and I, we got to see this opera performed in an Episcopal church in Rome by live opera singers with a small like chamber orchestra accompanying them. Completely magical. Really high-ceiling church. The the sound just reverberated everywhere. Unforgettable. Cool. Oh, have,
1: have you been to an opera before?
0: We did attend an opera before, also in a non-traditional setting. So we went to one in a Roman ruin when we went on our honeymoon doing it in a church. It's not a venue, it's not a dedicated place in that way, but it's also still constructed to to be very good with sound.
1: Well, I just before we move on from opera, I've sure. been kind of digesting and trying to learn my way around classical music for lack of a better word. One thing that I forget here and there is that like opera was like a major sort of repertoire piece of most of the great composers that People have heard of. Opera is a big thing of it. I've been trying to figure out how to find an accessible way into opera. So I've been asking various people who have some sort of enjoyment of opera for like tips on like where to start or what to think of or uh, maybe when we get back to Philadelphia, going deeper into the opera world. I would gladly take you with me. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: I'm definitely game.
1: In thinking about opera, not actually seeing it, I kind of like this blend of the music and the drama. It sort of touches into another realm that I've struggled with all my life, which is the musical form, which uh, isn't yeah. too far. You know, it's-, it's I know it's I-
0: not your brand though. It's not exactly where you land.
1: Someday I hope maybe opera will bring me to musicals. I think it's really cool that it's just another way in which culture and society chooses to engage with music. The fact that people have been going to the opera since like
0: 1600s. Yeah, many hundreds of years. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's it's really cool. And probably there's been drama with music going on for centuries.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What you said about the dramatic aspect of it reminded me of, I mean... Obviously, there were so many details to fixate on when I, we saw the opera in the church, but La Traviata is a, a story about a young man who's, like, poor, who falls in love with a courtesan, but this courtesan is also deeded to a duke, basically, like, this fancy guy is already kind of expecting to marry her, except this young poor man falls in love with her, she falls in love with him. Spoiler, she dies of tuberculosis. If it sounds familiar, I think Moulin Rouge copped some of these uh, plot lines. The pure drama of longing and heartbreak is really expressed when these singers are letting their voices ring. You can see anguish in their faces. It's really powerful. The church is also a cool setting to see that because you can actually make out someone's face, right? You're not sitting in a chair hundreds of feet away, like you're fairly close. Like we were probably within like 70 feet of where this is happening. And like able to really take it in and feel the emotions that these singers are projecting
1: yeah even though it, they were singing in italian
0: exactly did i understand a word they were saying no, but there's something universal about the emotions they're conveying. I could contextually piece it together, even if I didn't know word for word like what was happening. My grandparents were huge opera lovers. They had a massive collection of like opera records. I feel sad that I didn't get to spend a lot of time talking opera with them. If there was someone who was going to show me where to start, it probably would have been them.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, you said it was a, a play by Mont- Monteverdi? Um,
0: Giuseppe Verdi.
1: He's one of the big names I've come across in yeah. my opera for dummies uh uh <laughs> readings <laughs> i think he's probably a good starting. Uh, yeah, point. yeah i mean the italian tradition seems to be pretty high on the opera
0: charts <laughs> yes yeah. so there's a reason that so many of the operas are in italian
1: well cool that sounds like a like a wonderful experience all around definitely well, while you were away, I got to go to a live show, which I just thought I'd mention. I saw Kaya McCraven's band. He's a jazz drummer. He was playing at a World Cafe in Philadelphia. He had a trumpet player, a sax player, a guitarist, and a bass guitarist. And he was on drums. Man, it was phenomenal. Each of them had room to do some very extensive jazz solos that showcased like the individual talents of each of these musicians. But yeah. they were also... Really in sync. I mean, I haven't had a whole lot of opportunities to see jazz in recent years. It made me want to go see as much live music as I can. night we went to a very local centric i don't even know what's the right word
0: it's like a music night it's like a crossover karaoke dj situation i would say
1: (laughs) let's just give the details so in edenton on saturday nights at the edenton bay trading company uh, they have a special evening that they call vinyl night dj eddie and melissa are the MCs for the evening? It's like a real institution here in Edenton. We were warned ahead of time to like make time to see this. So, yeah, it was quite an event. A lot of regulars who are there to have a ball. Yeah,
0: <laughs> to super cut loose. Like, yeah. I've been to Edenton several times because my mother in law lives down here and she showed us this early on uh, in our visits. Like, she's been living here since about 2017. Going to Vinyl Night was an extremely special experience that we got to have. This might be my fourth one. I know my wife's been about four times. An evening where anybody in town can come and have a blast and listen to pretty eclectic variety of music. I feel like it's a lot of 70s, 80s, 90s, definitely some classic rock. Throughout the night you might be handed a tambourine
1: you might be handed a plastic guitar that you're supposed to air guitar with or a microphone uh, that's not a saxophone plugged in. Yeah. while this was uh, you know my first time and I was like please do not hand me this thing or <laughs> I don't know what to do uh, other people were like give it here yeah. you know so uh, there were some uh, fans of sh- the band Chicago full on like <laughs> air drums horns it seemed like The group had been practicing their Chicago's band syncing, whatever you want to call it. The people who were air playing the horns Mm -hmm. literally
0: had like a move that they had coordinated and choreographed. And it was fairly impressive. Yeah. I mean, they rehashed the uh, classic SNL skit with Will Ferrell playing the cowbell with Blue Oyster Cult. (laughs) Right. Which was, uh, you know, it was a pretty goofy take on it. But they were having fun, I think. An opportunity for people to... To perform.
1: I have not seen the film Dirty Dancing, but apparently a big part of each of their Saturday nights is uh, the, the, the MCs lift. have a rather... Yeah, you describe it, Lisa. So
0: Eddie <laughs> and Melissa, a married couple, have been doing this for like close to 10 years, something like that. They do the lift, which is a famous move that they practice in Dirty Dancing. Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey are rehearsing for this big dance at the end of you know the duration of the camp that they're at. And Swayze is an incredible dancer, both in real life or was and in the movie. But Jennifer Grey has a lot to learn and the, the lift is a very risky move, but it's an extremely dramatic moment. And they play Time of Your Life, that song that they do the dance routine to in Dirty Dancing. He lifts her up. It's a whole thing. And they do it every Saturday night almost no exception yeah people come out for it it's an event and last night was one of the most crowded uh times i've ever been there like it's it's in a small yard there's good vibes everywhere i had a blast cool yeah me too i had yeah it's time of my life (laughs) So today on our tunes, we're introducing a new segment. It's called, You're Gonna Hate This. It's basically a little game wherein Brad and I each pick a track that we like, but that we are sure has some some aesthetic uh, clash with, with others that not everybody will get down with.
1: All right, so to be clear, by others, we mean others in the audience or each other?
0: I'm going to say this applies to both of those parties. Okay. But if I'm being honest, I picked this one with you in mind. (laughs) Okay. This is a thing I like that maybe I don't have any business liking, but at the same time, I also know that you're not going to like it.
1: (laughs) Okay, crank it up. All right.
0: I quite nailed what I don't like. So, that's a British rock band called Placebo. Their power trio, their era is like late 90s uh, into now, actually. I think they're still an active band. That album that that track is off of is called Without You, I'm Nothing. Came out in 1998. That song is called Brick Shithouse. I don't know if you could identify the distorted voiceover at the beginning, but someone's saying, Built like a brick shithouse. Built like a brick shithouse. That's interesting that you're. You're immediately not repulsed by it, and it's cool. I'm glad.
1: Well, I kind of like the guitars. Personally, I'm not too cued in with vocals unless they're like grindingly screaming or something in a way that is like totally overpowers everything else that I'm listening to.
0: They also use the guitar, I feel like kind of like it's another part of the rhythm. My thought was in getting you to try to hate this song, you know, which was futile apparently. (laughs) The vocals are very divisive for this band. Because I think the tone, right? Extremely nasal tone vocals. I had to teach myself to like these vocals. And once I did that, I was like, yeah, this band is awesome because they have such a solid rhythm section. I just think that some people hear a vocal like that and they're immediately like turned off by it. Knowing that Brad doesn't really fixate on vocals. I was like, yeah, but what if like you couldn't ignore it or you like, couldn't put it out of your mind? I was thwarted. Okay. What do you got, Brad? Okay. Here's one for you. All right, lay on me. Uh,
1: But uh, you may very well like it, but I imagine that many people out there will not. I'll do my best
0: to hate it.
2: To the town of our free, who wrote a stranger one fine day. Hardly spoke to folks
1: around him, didn't have too much to say. No one dared to ask his business, no one dared to make a slip. So that's Marty Robbins' 1959 hit, Big Iron, which was a big hit. That was a big hit. That was a big hit. (laughs) It reached number five on the U.S. Hot Country songs, which was like the country billboard charts. Yeah. And then it was number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100. And so it's funny, after I just described how I don't really focus on vocals, that's like all that song is. Yeah, It's like a story.
0: That story has all like the makings of like a more badass song. It's like so campy and silly. You're talking about a murderer. I could just picture like Disney characters hopping along to that song. <laughs> 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 kind of into like the instrumentation, you know, there's mm-hmm. lots of cool little guitar runs happening. I like kind of the tinny effect of the guitar in that song. I would say what I don't like are the missed opportunities to make it dark. (laughs) (laughs) I think they got the aesthetic wrong. Yeah, and I I bet that
1: speaks to its time and place.
0: Yeah, people knew how to write a story about murder that was dark in that time. You could write about a murder and make it dark if you wanted to, but I guess not if you're trying to make country pop hits. Mm, Yeah. I love lots of campy stuff, right? Like, there's tons of, like, parody music that I listen to. A saying I hate camp would be wrong. I love Weird Al. Yeah. I, I find, I feel like I'm a little more selective about what I want to spend my time listening to these days. And I don't think I would seek out the Billboard country hits of the year 1960.
1: All right. I I, I have found a gold mine. <laughs> I have a uh, Billboard Hot 100 encyclopedia.
0: Yeah, we're going to be leafing through that. <laughs> I'm sure we can, we can find things that uh, the both of us hate. Oh, yes. From, from those lists.
1: And, in fact, the irony is that at one point in time, a lot of people liked them.
2: <laughs> Said if I wanted my freedom, I could be free evermore. But I don't want to be. And I don't want to see Mary cry anymore. Oh, devil woman, devil woman, let go of me. Devil woman, let go
0: This me be and leave is homework. So you may recall our last episode, which we recorded in Providence. Our friend and first guest, Ben Curry, uh, recommended this album. Ariel by Kate Bush, came out in 2005. Ben sent me a message about why he assigned this album. So yeah, let's hear about it.
3: Hi, Artunes, Lewis, Louis, Brad, and Rob. It was great to record with you all, and I hope you're doing well. Firstly, I'd like to apologize for assigning you a double CD set. That was rude. Second, I'd like to offer you my perspective on what is so important about Ariel by Kate Bush. When it came out in 2005, it was after a 12-year hiatus, during which time Kate and her husband and musical collaborator left the music scene to raise their child. The album is a luxurious exploration of houses, motherhood, laundry, math, birds, Grandparents, and the daily lives of artists and musicians. Songs are open-ended, but they also sound like they've been toyed with for years during their time away from recording. As with all of Kate Bush's music, every song is approached seriously, even if the lyrics are the digits of pie or a plaintive whisper washing machine. For anyone experiencing parenthood, domesticity, Or just spending more time listening to the birds ariel is a poetic meditation on and transcendence of those prosaic elements of life
0: damn (laughs) i mean yeah i can see why why this was assigned it's clearly a beloved album for ben
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was not aware that Kate Bush had made this album. I thought she kind of stopped making music in the late early 90s. I do like her album, Weathering Heights, and the big ones in the 80s that I, you know, had listened to and like I certainly appreciated her vocals. She is a phenomenal singer, but I also understand that she did a lot of the music arrangements, instrumentation, the full force of the musical, you know, yeah. creations that she had her name to. And so as I was listening to this, I also went back and like re-listened to some of those older albums and and it's kind of interesting to see like in this album her vocals are still amazing. Like, Stellar. She is a real joy to hear her sing. She is all over the place with sort of instrumentation. Really appreciate her use of I don't know if synths are the right word, but definitely like digital sounds. Whether it's the drum machines or string swells, uh, they're
0: pretty. They're pretty lush arrangements. Like yeah. Every yeah. single track. There's a few that are like really stripped down, but for the most part, they're very lush.
1: Yes, I feel like that's something that was present in her earlier work and that kind of follows in her personal sort of sound that she's created for herself over the years. Um, And I actually, I just, I did want to focus on that word swell. It's one of my favorite parts of all of her songs is that they have these dynamic swells. I feel like I'm like enveloped in them. It's great.
0: I think it's a credit to her songwriting because like when she times a you know incredibly crescendoed like vocal, with the arrangement of the song like that doesn't always work right. You can listen to that and be like, oh, I like see right through that. But I feel like her arrangement envelops you in such a way that when you do hit that that swell, that you really you really feel it. I felt it several times on listening uh, to this record. What were what were some of your favorite tracks, Brad? The
1: opening track was a really good song just of itself, so that was King of the Mountain. It was the one song that was a single off this album. It certainly can sort of stand alone. It sort of captures all the things that I was just describing. You know, it's got the vocals, the awesome synth swells. So, I mean, that one I I really enjoyed. Joanie, which is a reference to Joan of Arc, is a really interesting song. It's got really cool drum machine part.
0: I was really struck by listening to Mrs. Bartolozzi, which is her ode to a dishwasher. Mm -hmm. Right. My thought listening to this was only an artist, like true artist, can write a song like this that is so like earnest and honest, and it's literally a ballad about a dishwasher. have an extremely poetic song where some of the lyrics include wishy-washy, slishy-sloshy. It's hilarious, yet, like, when I think about that song, when I listen to that song, it's also compelling.
1: Get that dirty, shirty clean.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, she'll say these things, and she just, she completely nails the delivery of them. I feel like that's something Nick Cave gets away with a lot, too, is, like, saying absurd things, but nailing the delivery, and it it just... It's unstoppable.
1: Yeah, I'll be I'll be honest. That song was just a little too silly for me. <laughs> uh, Damn, I, I should have picked I, that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I didn't hate it, but yeah. I was like, this is silly.
0: I don't think that was my favorite song, like because of its aesthetics, but I was really uh-huh. struck by it listening sure. to it. Yeah. And other Kate Bush like music that I've enjoyed is very different from that. It's more in the vein of like kind of electropop or like uh, something that's danceable, even though like weathering heights, right? That's another weird subject to write mm-hmm. a song about, but it still comes across like incredibly, and I think again that's due to like her artistry. Probably my favorite track on that front side is "How to Be Invisible." The incredible like guitar tones on that. There's lots of like delayed guitars. It's kind of chorusy. <laughs>
1: mentioned that, you know, she would paused to raise her son, that this album was clearly crafted over a number of years, and so the song Bertie, um, which was, you know, ode, I guess to ode, ode to Her Son, that's something that if a parent made for you, like, that's a really um, touching song. I've seen these older rock stars like write songs to their about their children or to
0: their children and they're just a little
1: they're a little cheesy.
0: Yeah. It was sweet without being like saccharine. Like yeah. it's, a, it's not a disgusting song to listen yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> not
1: disgusting. Not disgusting. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe it's more apparent if you have the album that two different CDs or or, or albums uh, have different names for them. So disc one was called A Sea of Honey. Disc two is A Sky of Honey.
0: I feel like that is also something that's depicted in the album cover, which I was looking at a little bit, Mm -hmm. and it's meant to be a picture of a sunset, Mm -hmm. but the central reflection of it could also be mistaken for audio input. Yeah. In a recording interface.
1: <laughs> when I first saw the album cover, I was like, where is this? I want to go here. Yeah. You know, because it looks like a really cool place, like on water with maybe some geological features shooting out of them and nice clear day.
0: I think it's actually just the magical world that Kate Bush created. with
1: It is. So, yeah, when I looked, when I looked closer, I, I did. I was like, those are definitely sound forms. Yeah, those are peaks. And peaks. so in, in the Wikipedia page, they said it's um, waveforms of a Blackbird song superimposed over a glowing photograph. The second album definitely sort of sounds more cohesive as like one piece. And I think I even saw on there that there was some reissues where it was actually just
0: one Ah, song. like The whole second side? The whole second. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, The front feels like a lot of sketches, right? Time to tell some stories. Time to write some odes and some ballads, right? Disc two. Is definitely a different a different flavor. My favorite one off of this one is the closing track Ariel. It's much darker I feel like than the other ones it's definitely got like a driving beat and her vocals are really like stand out in that song.
1: appreciate the bass guitar work very like low end very smooth like it kind of reminded me a bit of um, massive attack or okay. like maybe even Portishead. head just digging it
0: subtle this lady is just so clearly an artist right some people are musicians and their skill is in their like craft and songwriting ability mm-hmm. but she's like an artist and her medium is music yeah i feel like that's like really clear when i listen to this album She can do things and imagine things and execute them in ways that are unparalleled.
1: I totally appreciate that she has created this like very unique sound. Everything seems so purposeful.
0: It was a delight. Thank you to Ben for recommending this album to us.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be in the rotation for a good while.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I listened to this while traveling on airplanes and trains all over Italy. So, like, definitely good music to be in motion to. There's a lot of steady beat driving stuff, but also the dramatic vocals that kind of just livened up my travel experience even more. I think it's your turn to assign me homework. Yes. What's my
1: homework, Brad? Lewis? I am going to be assigning to you a soundtrack. It's the soundtrack to the movie, The Harder They Come. Have you seen the movie or listened to the soundtrack? No, I haven't. Are you familiar with it?
0: I I know of it, (laughs) which is worth next to nothing. All right, so, (laughs) yes, it's
1: a a film set in Kingston, Jamaica, so all of it is going to be reggae.
0: (laughs) I mean, not mad about that.
1: Do you want to assign the movie?
0: Lewis, it would seem wrong to watch the sound I, to listen to the soundtrack without watching the movie.
1: I think it would uh, certainly add to the discussion. Yeah, let's uh, let's make it happen.
0: Thanks for listening to R-Tunes Tunes is produced by Robert Hughes, hosted by myself, Lewis Weil, and Brad Linde. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter. At RTunes Podcast and on Instagram at RTunes Pod. See y'all in a
1: couple
2: weeks. That
1: was the only bite I had all day. And I just put on a different type of tackle. And as soon as I threw it, it was. Which was very gratifying.